Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rebello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage on Monocle 24 with highlights from our studios here at Midori House and from around the world. This week, we look back on our series charting the history of the Chinese Communist Party. It has more than 90 million card-carrying members. It exercises supreme control over roughly a fifth of Earth's population. It runs the world's second biggest economy. And a century and a day ago, the Chinese Communist Party didn't exist. Plus, we head down to South Tyrol to discover some traditional mountain spa techniques. The health benefits of submerging oneself in cold water have been recognised since Roman times. But it's a Bavarian priest named Sebastian Kneipp, who is known today as the father of modern hydrotherapy. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rubello. As we recap the past week here on Monocle 24, it's only right that our very own Andrew Muller rounds up the things we know now that we didn't seven days ago. Here he is with this week's What We Learned. We learned this week that the Giuliani name is perhaps not the rock-solid brand that it once was, at least as far as denoting sagacious political leadership goes. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Well, quite. We learned that the bid of Andrew Giuliani to excel his father, Rudolph, by becoming not merely mayor of New York City, but governor of New York State, had struck something of a snag. Yes, very evocative. A straw poll of state Republican leaders put Giuliani Jr. at a somewhat discouraging 0%. This setback descended a matter of days after Andrew's dad had been suspended from practicing law as a consequence of his efforts to insist that the 2020 US presidential election had been, unlike his own hair dye, fixed. So we would appear to have learned that if one of your family line ever finds themselves ranting frantically in defense of Donald Trump outside a Philadelphia gardening center between a crematorium and a dildo shop, maybe give it a couple of generations before seeking office again. Let's have that agonizing gear change sound effect. For we also learned that it's surprisingly difficult to affect a seamless switch from a story involving Rudy Giuliani to a story involving Ukraine. You'd reckon there'd be something there, especially since we learned about this earlier this month. I want very much to see that our two countries are able to work together. Have Giuliani cajoled the Ukrainian presidential advisor on the other end of the line, first promoting debunked conspiracy theories that Ukraine, not Russia, was involved in US election meddling in 2016. Anyway, only another 18 weeks or so until the first anniversary of Giuliani's last stand at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, start planning your costumes. Because, actually, this works pretty well. On the subject of planning costumes... 
Maestro, the Ukrainian national anthem. The many morbidly obsessive listeners of this segment will recall that we gave this rousing tuna thrash a few weeks back when we learned that the shirts to be worn by Ukraine's football team at the ongoing European Championships were inlaid with a map of Ukraine which includes Crimea, presently occupied by Russia. We learned this week that Ukraine had found a way to ratchet this exemplary trolling up. Yet another notch. Yes, yes. Following Ukraine's stirring defeat of Sweden on Tuesday night to reach the quarterfinals of a tournament which Russia is very much no longer in, (laughs) we learned that Ukraine's entire cabinet had reported for work on Wednesday morning wearing the team colours, inlaid maps and all. As big fans of international sporting tournaments being repurposed as arenas for the winding up of one's real-world foes, we're hoping to see much more of this should Ukraine progress past England on Saturday evening, possibly including the adoption by Ukrainian fans of a well-loved English pre-cup final football chant, as now handily translated into the Russian by our football hooliganism desk chief, Paige Reynolds. На Уэмбли мы поедем, войны поедете, 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 а Уэмбли мы поедем, войны поедете. And we learn not only that there's someone worse off, but precisely who they are. And the fact that you can now hear a song by Moose should have you well braced for something ruminant related. The unfortunates are two Australian nude sunbathers whose enjoyment of a beach south of Sydney, we learned, had been interrupted by an inquisitive deer. (laughs) Is that actually a deer noise or have you just pressed the goat button again? Whatever. For reasons maddeningly obscure as of this broadcast, the unclad day-trippers were sufficiently startled by the marauding antler owner that they bolted into nearby bushland and called the cops. A search and rescue operation involving a helicopter... Involving a helicopter... eventually recovered the pair unharmed, but they were fined $1,000 each for breaching COVID-19 regulations by being there in the first place. So we learned that the total bill for their outing was not merely a fright, humiliation, the knowledge that the world was laughing at them and $1,000 each, but hearing New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller speaking of them thus... Look, I think, as the health minister said yesterday, it's difficult to legislate against idiots, but, but you know... And we learned that, even worse than that, this pair of hapless and indeed trouserless blokes, both saved and punished by the New South Wales justice system following their encounter with the deer, had simultaneously delighted the world's professional punsmiths and horrified their readers or listeners, as stories involving deer always do. 
And we, for one whimsical news monologue, thought that this story of humanity returned abruptly to nature deserved better than the cheap shots about buck naked, which largely adorned it elsewhere, and have gone with something more literary and highbrow, as befits a tale of bison men. Peasants. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks, Andrew. We turn next to something else that made the headlines this week, and that was the death of the former US Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld will perhaps be best remembered for suggesting that Iraq could have been providing terrorists with weapons of mass destruction, despite the fact that there wasn't much evidence for it. As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns, the ones we don't know we don't know. Donald Rumsfeld speaking there in 2002, not long before the US-led invasion of Iraq. For Thursday's edition of The Globalist, Monocle Zeman Nelson was joined by Scott Lucas, an adjunct professor at the Clinton Institute at University College Dublin, to discuss how Rumsfeld will be remembered. I think we can safely say that history will not be kind to Donald Rumsfeld. Nor should history not be kind to Donald Rumsfeld, because Donald Rumsfeld wasn't very kind to uh, many, many people, a lot of whom wound up dead because of him. Uh, I'll leave it to others to speak personally about Rumsfeld. Uh, My grandmother said, never speak ill of the dead. I'll talk more about, in other words, Rumsfeld's actions and those of the Bush administration. Indeed, those of Rumsfeld in previous administrations. Remember, he was the youngest Secretary of Defense in U.S. history and the oldest. But to start with, yeah, hundreds of thousands of Iraqis died in part because of what Donald Rumsfeld pursued with others, not in a belief that weapons of mass destruction would be found in Iraq. I think they knew they weren't there, but in this belief that a demonstration case had to be made of Saddam Hussein, who, of course, was an evil man who had killed many people himself, but that rather than dealing with Saddam Hussein in a court, rather than dealing with it through a legal process, the U.S. would make an example of him to demonstrate its power. In other words, the Rumsfeld legacy was to attempt the unipolar America, the world's only superpower, through the shock and awe of military force. But of course, the twist in that legacy is far from proving that America was the world's only superpower. It actually proved America's weakness, ripping apart the nation at home. And in the end, getting America involved in a insurgency and in a deadly civil war, uh, which to be charitable, it didn't win. And indeed, some would say it lost as those Iraqis continued to lose their lives. I mean, Rumsfeld, when you just think about where the US military was present during Rumsfeld's period, Kuwait, Kosovo, Afghanistan, but the, the fact was that the, the US is, you, you talk about the unipolar era when you can only have one superpower. It was a direct result of the Cold War. His influence, his global influence, has legacies which are still being felt today. Well, I think yes and no, Emma. I think the the Rumsfeld approach, again, in combination with others, was to put, you know, small U.S. deployments, mobile U.S. deployments of military around the world. There would be no place where you wouldn't see a U.S. military footprint. So it wasn't just Iraq. Of course, it was also Afghanistan. It was the Central Asian nations around Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan. It was the rest of the Middle East. It was the Philippines. It was North Africa. And it was this idea that 
Uncle Sam would simply flex his muscles and everybody would jump to it. And by 2009, by that moment when an Iraqi journalist, not the Iraqi military, not Iraqi insurgents, an Iraqi journalist threw both his shoes at George W. Bush and Bush ducked, powerless to do anything, you saw that that had all fallen apart. In a sense, what has sort of boxed in that Rumsfeld legacy of that American power around the world is, of course, first of all, that Donald Trump, if Donald Trump, if Donald Rumsfeld and his other folks had shot America or the idea of America, Donald Trump stomped all over it um, and has left it in tatters. And then, of course, it was the fact that Rumsfeld's legacy was always a myth that America could rule the world through the military. Other powers like China, like Brazil, like a South Africa. In other words, it's not an us versus them world. There are many countries in the world who have military, economic, and political influence, maybe not as much as America. Rumsfeld never really cottoned on to that. The issue that many find with, with Rumsfeld was the, the fact that he had posited ideas as cast-iron certainties. For example, intelligence about Iraq having weapons of mass, mass destruction. And he was aware of these gaping holes in the intelligence, yet he still pushed forward with saying, this is a certainty, this must continue. It suddenly opened up the issue of whether you could trust those in power when it came to making enormous decisions. I think that's a great point, Emma. I think the immediate point about Rumsfeld is, is that Rumsfeld didn't, you know, he didn't work off the basis of facts. He didn't work on the basis of, of intelligence, as you meant it. Um, the Bush administration completely ripped up the intelligence about Iraq and about other parts of the world. He worked on a particular faith-based approach. He believed in Donald Rumsfeld. The Bush administration believed that everybody would welcome him if they overthrew Saddam Hussein and that there might be WMDs. And that faith-based approach, of course, didn't work. But as you quite rightly pointed out, I think you're right, the damage to trust in government, or not even trust, but the damage to the idea that governments might actually be saying something which is true, is something that has been exploited and manipulated, where almost every time where America, trying to work with others, actually tried to intervene to protect civilians. Syria is a huge case. Uh, Libya is another case. Even the question of how you approach you know, an issue like Israel and Palestine, is that anyone would say, oh, the source of evil is America. You can't trust them. And that idea that America is the source of evil means that far from dealing with the issues of 2021, not just in the Middle East, but in South America, in Africa, in Europe, this idea of saying everything must be first and foremost, America is wrong, we'll start with that. We don't believe the American government and work from there. That's not quite as damaging as what Rumsfeld did, but it certainly doesn't help. That was U.S. political expert Scott Lucas in conversation with Emma Nelson for Thursday's edition of The Globalist. Well, Thursday also marked 100 years since the founding of the Chinese Communist Party. And on The Globalist this week, we focus on how it has shaped China in this time, from its isolationist beginnings to the international prominence we see today. In the second part of our series, Andrew Muller went right back to the start to ponder how this vast and powerful institution came into being. It has more than 90 million card-carrying members. It exercises supreme control over roughly a fifth of Earth's population. It runs the world's second biggest economy. It commands the world's largest military with nearly three million troops under arms. And a century and a day ago, the Chinese Communist Party didn't exist. 
It's always pretty weird to think of any colossal entity that there was a time when it wasn't there, and that, therefore, there must have been a moment at which someone said to someone else, Hey, you know what we should start? That person was Chun Du Xiao, and the colleague to whom he made his pitch around about 100 years ago today was Li Da Zhao. Chun was a peripatetic agitator and pamphleteer, Li a librarian and politics professor at Peking University, given to revving up his students with zealous yarns about the Russian Revolution of a few years previously. Among the impressionable young folk taking notes was a farmer's son from Hunan called Mao Zedong. The CCP was inaugurated in Shanghai on, at least according to the official CCP history, July 1st, 1921. That date may have been a retrospectively convenient selection. The CCP initially seemed a natural ally to the Kuomintang, an already established Chinese Nationalist Party, but the two outfits fell out badly. This had fatal consequences for Li Dajiao, who was lynched in 1927. Chen Duxiao was imprisoned by the KMT in 1932. Two of his sons died fighting them. The civil war between the CCP and the KMT lasted more than two decades, interrupted from 1937 to 1945 by a hideous war with Japan, during which the Chinese rivals more or less united against their common enemy. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. A brutal massacre of Chinese students. Japan's occupation of China was ended by its defeat in World War II in 1945. The CCP eventually triumphed in China's civil war in 1949. Its People's Liberation Army chased the KMT onto Taiwan, where it remains a political party. On October 1st, 1949, Mao Zedong, now chairman of the CCP, proclaimed the founding of the People's Republic of China. And it is at least in the hundreds. It may go as a high as a thousand or more, and the fighting is not yet By over. president-in-waiting Xi Jinping, the seven men file onto a stage in the Great Hall of the People. And it's the will of the people, says Xi Jinping in his first public address. As Mao party remained secretary. in charge of the party and the country until his death in 1976. Mao's rule was one of successive and immeasurably destructive ideological manias, the great leap forward of the 1950s and 1960s and the cultural revolution of the 1960s and 1970s. Those who succeeded Mao at the top of the CCP were no less ruthless, but mercifully more pragmatic. Deng Xiaoping, who effectively guided China from 1978 to 1992, understood that this vast country could not huddle forever in agrarian isolation. When the CCP's fellow communist parties in Europe began handing in their party cards in the late 1980s, there was considerable speculation as to whether freedom's tide would wash away communism in China as well. The answer turned out to be yes and no. Yes, inasmuch as the process of economic liberalisation already launched in the mid-1980s accelerated as the CCP treated us to the spectacle of communists opening stock exchanges and Colonel Sanders' face became more of a frequent feature of Beijing streetscapes than Chairman Mao's. No, inasmuch as Tiananmen Square. We all knew it couldn't go on forever, but no one thought it would come to this. 
a brutal massacre of Chinese students and other protesters by the Chinese army. The death count goes on tonight, and it is at least in the hundreds. It may go as a high as a thousand or more, and the fighting is not yet over. A conventional wisdom nevertheless developed that the CCP could not maintain this balancing act forever, that people enjoying greater economic freedom and the prosperity it brought would sooner or later demand greater political liberty. This never quite occurred. The CCP, perhaps learning from the anarchic kleptocracy into which its neighbour and rival Russia descended in the 1990s, and perhaps, who knows, understanding China better than many Western pontificators, held the line. The CCP may no longer have been as determined as it once was to institute a dictatorship of the proletariat, but it remained pretty keen on dictatorship. 100 eventful years since its foundation, the CCP appears stronger than ever. Its general secretary since 2012, Xi Jinping, is the son of a communist revolutionary who was for a time imprisoned during the Cultural Revolution. The new Chinese leaders revealed, led by president-in-waiting Xi Jinping, the seven men file onto a stage in the Great Hall of the People. And it's the will of the people, says Xi Jinping in his first public address as party secretary, that the leaders must take into account. Xi Jinping is certainly the party's most dominant leader since Mao, and the party appears in greater control of China and its 1.4 billion people than at any previous point, abetted by an all-pervasive technological panopticon. China is a, a giant fact of geopolitics. It's We're going to deal China. with China effectively. la rivalité entre la Chine et les États-Unis, quel que soit le point mondial de ces deux grandes puissances. But even should it last another hundred years, the people are unlikely ever to be asked. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Mullet. Monocle's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, there. Staying in Asia now for a highlight from the latest edition of The Entrepreneurs. For this week's show, Monocle's Nina Millot spoke to Karaniko founder Blair Christon about the brand's whole plant-based meat alternative made from jackfruit and Asia's growing taste for meat alternatives. Corona basically came about as a result, I guess, of the meeting of the minds between Dan, my co-founder, and myself. Whilst I was working at Impossible Foods and also with some other plant-based and cell-based meat companies in the US, I was doing some work on Asia and international expansion strategy. And what I saw is, okay, we're bringing beef products to Asia in quite Western formats, because initially it was still very focused on the burger. And of course, there's space for that, and they've been really successful. But I also saw a huge opportunity to do something more localized and more focused on Asia, and particularly on the meats that we consume here. In Asia, we consume pork, chicken, and seafood more than we do beef. And I guess somewhat selfishly, in terms of some of the products we're developing, I, having grown up in Hong Kong, love my dim sum, and um, I really wanted to be able to eat some good plant-based dim sum. So basically, I met Dan at a conference in the US, and I'd been thinking about 
doing my own thing in Asia and had been pushed along by a couple of people that I'd met out here encouraging me to do it, but thought I needed to spend some more time in the US, you know, with the market leaders and in the innovation hub of Silicon Valley. But met Dan and he had already started Karana, but was only a few months into it and was looking for a co-founder. Basically, we realized we had a lot of the same ideas about things in terms of how to approach the Asian market. I, at that time, wasn't so focused on the whole plant story, but it was something that Dan was very passionate about. Having worked in the agri-commodity supply chain space, he had seen firsthand some of the issues with commodity crops and agri-commodities. And so he was very passionate about really leveraging the biodiversity that's out there in Asia. And that's something we focus on. But as we sort of talked about that and developed our business plan, we realized actually there's, it makes sense as a real business opportunity to do something that's differentiated, that is whole plant minimally processed rather than based on commodity crops like soybean and wheat. So Dan and I did some founder dating for a while, which was fun, just kind of testing how we work together. I was still based in Silicon Valley. I traveled out to Singapore for about a little over a month. And after that, signed on the dotted line and packed up my bags and shipped out back to Asia. And so, yeah, it's really great to be back in my home region and doing this. Can you tell me about how you came up with jackfruit? And for people listening, what does it feel like to actually eat jackfruit? For jackfruit, the reason we landed there is, as I mentioned earlier, Dan is passionate about leveraging biodiversity and the whole plant side of things. And so in our food system right now, 12 crops make up 75% of what we eat. And we only commonly consume about 150 of 300,000 edible plant species. So there's this huge opportunity to explore the biodiversity out there and find ingredients that are naturally meat-like that just need nudging in the right direction through innovative processing techniques or smart ways to kind of bring them to market and scale them up. So we're very transparent. We're not the first people to ever have used jackfruit as a meat replacement. And it's actually been used in local cuisines in the countries where it grows for a long time in sort of South Asia and Southeast Asia, usually in a curry format. And often really, really delicious, but it's a laborious ingredient to work with. If you were just taking the jackfruit from the tree and preparing it in your kitchen, I mean, you're talking hours and also a lot of knowledge around the ingredient. What we found is the way that it had been commercialized and industrialized as a meat replacement didn't meet consumer expectations around taste and experience, but we knew it could be amazing because Dan had actually tried a jackfruit dish that he thought was pork when he ate it and didn't realize and this was before he kind of moved towards being plant-based when he was in his transition and still eating meat and he was living in indonesia at the time where jackfruit grows and he just found it really hard to source so you know that was kind of the genesis of like okay well this could be the first ingredient we look into and then We then started obviously looking at, like, it doesn't make sense from a business perspective. Is it scalable? Is it available? And all of those kind of things. Amongst other metrics we look at around sustainability and whatnot. Jackfruit itself is a highly sustainable ingredient. It's very high yielding, requires little inputs. It is also abundantly available. So currently upwards of 60% of the world's jackfruit crop goes to waste. So there's a huge opportunity to reduce that wastage and bring this readily available ingredient to market. And what we've done is develop our own proprietary process for processing the jackfruit. It's all mechanical, so we still say it's minimally processed, but that just enhances the texture 
and presents it in a way that is more accessible in the kitchen and also does meet consumer experiences around taste and experience, unlike the other industrialized formats of jackfruit. You now sort your jackfruit in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. Why Sri Lanka and how did you approach your supplier? How do you work with them? Jackfruit grows all across South and Southeast Asia, but we chose Sri Lanka specifically because it is readily available there. And also they have a great knowledge around the specific maturity we need because they, they use that in their own local cuisine. And also the quality of the produce there is just so fantastic. And they practice really, really great farming practices. They have a, almost an agroforestry model. There's a lot of biodiversity in the way they farm with intercrops. So jackfruit is often grown on tea and spice plantations as a shade crop, and that promotes soil health rather than having just one crop growing in your soil. And largely everything is done organically there. So, you know, from a quality perspective, from a knowledge of the ingredient and the availability of it, it just made sense to us. So in terms of approaching the suppliers and finding them, I mean, that has been not an easy task. So it's taken us the better part of two years to build out our supply chain and get everything going and develop our IP and our process. I think this is where I have to give a lot of credit to Dan, my co-founder, and Carsten, our chief science officer. Dan has a lot of experience in working in developing markets in the agri-commodity space. So that kind of knowledge transfers across here and he's able to operate in that environment where often communication is difficult and things are just are a little bit less formal than you may expect. So yeah, I mean, it's also extremely rewarding because we work with smallholder farmers in Sri Lanka and we're finding a way to bring them additional income and revenue streams. And that's something we care a lot about in terms of making sure that our supply chain is transparent, but also the people working in our supply chain are getting their fair dues. And it's awesome to be in these kind of environments and helping develop them and develop their agricultural sector. So you now launched in Singapore and Hong Kong. Can you tell me about your strategy for the launch, the partner restaurants and how you're going to launch retail soon? Yeah, it's been really exciting. We launched Singapore and Hong Kong within the space of five months. So we launched in Singapore in late January and then Hong Kong in May. So the strategy has really been around initially working with a small group of restaurant partners who can be advocates and ambassadors for the products and the brand, as well as, you know, create great tasting dishes for people who go into their restaurants to try it and to then build some brand awareness there through that before we do a wider rollout. So in Singapore, we see a lot of value in, in working with restaurants initially because not only do they help us, you know, give us credibility, but we also learn a lot from them in terms of how they're cooking with the ingredient, what they're doing with it, what dishes they put together, what challenges they have. And, you know, we're always looking to improve our products. So, you know, if they give us feedback that we can use to improve the product, that's great as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the plant-based meat market in Asia? Because I feel like it's not as easy to penetrate as, you know, the European or the US market when it comes to just plant-based options in general. So you decided to focus on Asia. Do you find it difficult? And what's your take on the future of the market? Yeah, I would say the market here is definitely nascent when you compare it to the US or Europe or even Australia. 
But I think there is growing interest and it reminds me of how the US market was in 2016, 2017, when I was first making my foray into this space. So there are definitely challenges around consumer education and convincing consumers. But I think consumers here are increasingly paying attention to their health and as part of that diet and how it impacts their health. And obviously, would never have wanted COVID to happen, but a silver lining of that is it has forced people to think a lot more about their health and healthy lifestyles and healthy eating. And as a whole plant-based, minimally processed product with, you know, our meat only has four ingredients for our shredded pork products and five ingredients for our minced pork products, you know, short ingredient list that's very transparent, it definitely ties into that discourse that people have around health. And there are lots of health benefits that come with eating a plant-based diet. So we've got to double down on that education and that messaging. And it's not just us as Karana, it's also the industry in general, so the plant-based food industry. And I very much think it's a rising tide lifts all boats and we can work together to grow the market here in Asia. I think as well, you know, another reason why we chose Asia is Obviously, from a business perspective, there's an opportunity, but from an impact perspective, there's also a huge opportunity. We're a mission-driven company, and we're doing this because we want to affect a better food system, addressing sustainability and climate change, as well as making sure people have access to great and healthy food. And so with such a large amount of the world's population in Asia and rising meat consumption, there is a huge possibility for impact here if you can convince people to adopt a more plant-forward diet. And I think the early signs are promising. China now is the world's largest wellness market. Increasingly young and wealthy Chinese are paying attention to their health and to their lifestyle. And there is a lot of interest in plant-based eating. So, of course, not without its challenges. Hong Kong, for example, is the number one meat consumption per capita globally. People love their meat here. It's almost like vegetables at a meal or an afterthought. But that's not to say that it can't change and it won't change. Blair Christon, the co-founder of Karana, speaking to Monocle's Nina Millot there. Staying in the culinary world for now for a highlight from the latest installment of Food Neighborhoods. For this week's show, chef and author Hugh Amano shares a simple way to make Japanese gyoza at home. My name is Hugh Amano. I'm the author of Let's Make Dumplings, illustrated by Sarah Bikan. And I'm going to talk about the gyoza recipe in the book. Gyoza is a Japanese dumpling, one of my favorites. I started eating it as a very young child. And it's a really simple uh, mixture of cabbage and pork and a lot of great seasonings. Don't overthink the filling too much. If you have too much filling left over, just fry it up and eat it with some eggs or something like that. But to make the filling, take uh, half of a medium cabbage, take the core out and then mince up the leaves. You can also do that in a food processor. Toss it with a couple teaspoons of salt put it into a strainer and let it sit for about 30 minutes to draw all the cabbage water out. Roll it up in a towel, squeeze all that water out, and then proceed to mix in a pound of ground pork, about a bunch of minced green onions, six cloves of minced garlic, about a three inch piece of ginger minced, a couple tablespoons of soy sauce, a tablespoon of sesame oil, 
and season it with about a teaspoon each of ground black pepper and sugar. Mix those together really well. You can do that in a standing mixer or with your hand and that's the filling right there. Then just grab some uh, dumpling wrappers, preferably gyoza wrappers, which will be round and start filling them. And I would say if you do about two teaspoons of filling per wrapper, and again, it's difficult to describe how, how to wrap and fold and seal a dumpling, but you can really just put some little water around the rim of the dumpling, fold it over, press it down, make sure all the air is out of the dumpling to seal it. And then I like to pan fry it. So in a nonstick pan over medium heat, add a little bit of oil, add the dumplings, let them fry until golden brown. Then add about half a cup of water and cover it quickly. It'll be angry and bubbling and boiling. So just go ahead and cover it and let that ride for about five minutes. Take the lid off, let it go for another minute or two, and you should be good to go. And they're just deliciously crispy on the bottom, soft on the top, and really tasty in the middle. Those are gyoza. The chef and author Hugh Amano there for the latest episode of Food Neighborhoods. Still to come here on The Curator, we meet the chess aficionado who became a grandmaster at the age of 15. We head to the French capital for a look back at Paris Fashion Week and we head to South Tyrol to discover some traditional mountain spa techniques. Stay tuned. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I'm Carlotta Rebello. In politics and diplomacy, no metaphor is more routinely used than chess. But are there really similarities between chess and politics? The skilled and subtle politicians and diplomats are praised as grandmasters, forever thinking several moves ahead. Well, for last weekend's edition of the Foreign Desk, Andrew Muller spoke to Judith Polgar, the greatest female chess player of all time and by a long mile. Judith became the youngest grandmaster at the age of 15, breaking the previous record set by Bobby Fischer. Here's part of their conversation. As I was very small when I started to play chess, I was five and I learned the moves from my mother. My sister Susan was already 12 at the time, so she was competing already competitively. For me, it was a game. I didn't really understand what is going on around. And later on, of course, I mean, we lived in in those times when we were not allowed to go abroad for some time. It was very difficult to travel. I was playing chess daily at home, and that's what I was focusing on. But you did start to travel at quite a young age, I believe. You were playing in the New York Open in 1986 when you were nine. I think they sent you to Australia when you were 10. And again, this is obviously very young. But at what point did you get some understanding that you were being promoted as an ambassador of some sort? Well, first of all, back in 85, when I was just eight years old, in that time, my sisters traveled to America But that time, the whole family was not allowed because they were afraid that we are going to be defecting to the States. So only some part of the family was able to go. 
When I was eight, I mean, I understood that I'm growing up in a very special and unique family with not a regular daily routine as for other kids. That was really clear. I didn't feel at all that I'm an ambassador for the game yet because we were more of a curiosity of the sport that, well, there is a family, strange family, the whole family, the three daughters are playing chess and they don't even play so badly. So it was more like a colorful story in the chess community. But the first international success, indeed, I was nine years old. And uh, later on, when I was 12 and we won the first Chess Olympiad, that was already a milestone of different caliber. But especially when you won that first Chess Olympiad, that three of the four of the women's Hungarian team were the Polgar sisters. Did you have a sense, though, that you were being promoted by Hungarian authorities in the same way that Russian chess players of the time were promoted by Soviet authorities as this kind of avatar of the superiority of communism? Not at all, because for quite some time we had quite an opposition from the government and also from the Hungarian Chess Federation, as in those times it was not something very valuable or appreciated that you want to go on your own way, as my parents did. By not going to school, that was one of the issues that they were opposing. And the other one was from the Federation's point of view, that why do we need girls competing between men? They should be competing between ladies because we had great, great players in the men's team. But my parents said that just because they are girls, they want to also excel the maximum possible way as in the sport, not as only girls being the best. Because you have to understand there is a huge gap between the best female and the best male players. In those times, there were even a huger difference. Right now in the top 100, the best lady player is 85. And in those times, it was even more behind, I think. That's really interesting, though. Do you think Hungarian authorities would have promoted you differently if you'd been three young brothers who were incredibly good at chess? Definitely, from the Federation point of view, it's not a question that if we would be boys, they would be much more supportive for us to play in competitions and possibly to get better as possible. Though I'm telling you that we had really top players who had their places in the Olympic team and also in the world of chess. Do chess players generally, whatever else was going on around them, especially during the Cold War years, did you get a sense that chess players have any idea of themselves representing their nation or representing an ideology? Or is it a very individualistic, self-contained sport where you really just think, I'm just playing for myself here? Generally speaking, players are not playing for ideologies. They do play for the countries. So I know, of course, the Chess Olympiad is where you play for your country and you try your best. Of course, it's a great event for everybody, for all country. But generally, of course, chess is an individual sport. So with all the good and bad and uh, things around it, when you play chess, you know that you're on your own fighting yourself, even though you have your team or you have your helper or you made your home preparation, but still when you are at the board, you are on your own. 
you knew and indeed played against and in many cases beat some of those players who were promoted, especially by the United States or the Soviet Union, as these ideological sentinels, the likes of Spassky and Kasparov and Fischer. Did you talk to them about what that felt like, being sent out to kind of you know, represent one side or the other in the Cold War? Or, or when chess players get together, do you just talk about chess? No, of course, we talk about everything. And of course, different periods of times, there were different issues and topics. Obviously, for example, when Anatoly Karpov was a world champion from 75, it was a completely different era. And it is very clear that the Soviets were very supportive. They gave him a lot of help by helpers and in many different ways. And I was competing with Anatoly Karpov in uh, many tournaments and for many years. It was already a lot different when I was talking to Garry Kasparov about it because he was the rebelling boy. He was <laughs> representing the other side kind of thing. And also I liked his chest style very much because he was very straightforward. And that's how he is as a person whenever he talks about politics in the last uh, one or two decades already. So for them, it was, of course, there is a different fight than for other competitors, because right now I don't feel the politics so much in the competitive chess. Of course, it was a lot different back in the Fisher's Basket in 72. I mean, that was about the Cold War, right? 50 years ago, it was definitely about politics when Fisher won against Spassky. But on that thought, do you think chess could again have that kind of, I guess, soft power potence on the world stage, perhaps especially if a rising power like India or China especially promoted the women's game? I think now chess has its renaissance because it was never so popular on every level, to be honest, because on a sport level, as you say, that India is really booming I mean, definitely that's the country where, uh, not weekly, but every few months you see another incredible big talent. In China, of course, they've won a few chess Olympiads lately, so they are really, really good in that. But also in amateur level, there are such a boom after the series of chess, the Queen's Gambit. Among all those men. I don't mind it. Chess isn't always competitive. Chess can also be beautiful. Chess became very sexy. Chess became so popular. It is such a big joy for me to see so many people picking up the game or even getting back as an amateur player. That, yeah, I played when I was a kid with my parents and so interesting. And I think it shows many different faces of the game. And also it is very heavily part of the modern education to have chess in schools. I'm an ambassador for that. And I really believe that for kids development, for general skill development, it can be very useful. So I think it is in great shape, chess itself in many ways. And there are great future availability there, uh, more to come. When you look back on your time as a chess champion and a professional competitor, is there one victory that you recall with particular satisfaction? 
I'm always saying that I'm so fortunate that, first of all, I have a career of more than three decades and I have quite a few victories that I'm so happy to think back. Well, one of the most memorable victory of a game was when I played against Anand, who is a multiple five-time world champion from India. In 99 in Spain, I won a spectacular game against him. Judith Polgar, the greatest female chess player of all time there, speaking to Andrew Muller for last weekend's edition of The Foreign Desk. You're with The Curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. For this week's episode of Monocle on Design, the team looked at Paris Fashion Week. The event took over the French capital with a number of brands returning to the runway and debuting their collections for spring-summer 2022 with live shows. To reflect on some of the highlights from the event, Monocle's Nolan Giles was joined by fashion journalist and regular Monocle 24 contributor Dana Thomas. Nolan began by asking how things were faring in Paris at the moment. Well, it's been very rainy, which makes it kind of difficult to get around. And the traffic is back. It's epic traffic. So whenever we go anywhere in town now, we're back on our bicycles and trying to dodge the raindrops. But it's really wonderful to be back in Paris and see Paris opening up and alive. I was riding my bicycle through the Marais the other evening and just seeing all these particularly young people who've like blossomed, they're like tulips opening in springtime out in the streets, dressed so fantastically well and just walking with purpose to their social engagements. And the cafes are full and the terraces are full and you can hear parties and you don't mind. That sounds absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm feeling like a lot of a lot of Europe is getting back to that point, which is which is so lovely. So we're talking about uh, Fashion Week in Paris. Before we got on air, I was talking to you about Milan, and it's been a bit of a tentative start in terms of shows. Not so many brands are getting back to live shows, but a few are. I think there was only three in Milan, but I believe there were six in Paris. What happened in terms of physical shows and then digital shows? There were a handful in Paris and the ones that were on, you know, were the ones you want to be on. You know, the last show I went to before lockdown was Dior Women's Wear at the Place La Concorde. And the first one back is Dior Men's Wear at the Place La Concorde. And it was just great. It was a partnership with Travis Scott, the rapper, and it just was alive. Of course, the music was fantastic. He did a whole soundtrack himself and included a new cut of music that was really, really happening. Going to the shows was like going to a rave in person and online. There was great music, a lot of color. We've been dressing down because we've been home and wearing, you know, muted colors and soft clothes and baggy clothes and trying to nestle and, and swathe ourselves to get through this period. And now we're back out. And like I said, those kids in the street that I saw on their way to parties and social engagements, the shows were just all about embracing hedonism again. And we saw that particularly at Dior. There has been this just incredible footage of Travis Scott kind of being mobbed by fans. Is this just, you know, in line with with the mood of everyone right now, everyone that's lucky enough to be in this position where we are getting back out into the world? Do you just think fashion designers are really channeling this, making something exciting from it? Obviously, you know, it's great to celebrate this, but the craft of defining a collection with a sense of celebration is not easily done, right? No, it's not. In fact, you know, they had an impromptu street mosh pit in front of the tent where they had the show at Dior. It was just, you know, 
enthusiasm, I guess is the word that you, you, you want to apply to the clothes, the energy, the everything. And some retro looks, you know, there were flared pants, there's psychedelic influences, there's sun bleached pastels, acid colors, some graffiti and big names and words blasted onto outfits, lots of neon. It's just like somebody turned the lights back on. It's just great. And I'd love to hone in a little bit on the business side of things because there is a reason why these shows do need to happen in person. You know, it is a lot about buyers coming and and seeing what they're actually going to be selling in their shops. And it has been difficult for a lot of people. It seems from reading up on the Paris event that the bigger French names, the ones that did exhibit and have physical shows, are saying, you know, there's a real business case to this. We can't do everything online. You know, we need to satisfy buyers across Europe because it's only, I guess, Europeans that can go to these events at the moment, but obviously the rest of the world to follow soon. So can you take us through that side of things, why these big French houses are saying it is so important to have a physical show? Well, it's not just the French houses. Even Mr. Armani said, you know, it's really important because... You know, it's important for the city for him to have a a show in Milan. He's, you know, the hotels are half full, the storefronts are vacant, and the same's in Paris. There are a lot of places that are empty, that businesses that just didn't make it through. Or, you know, even with the big brands, you know, say they had five stores in Paris and then they had to close for a year and a half. And they looked at their balance sheets and they said, maybe we don't need five, maybe we need three. So you walk down the street and you see, you know, down the Rue Saint-Père and down the Rue du Bac and down the Rue de Sèvres or the Faubourg Saint-Honoré, you see stores that are closed and the windows papered up, which is kind of heartbreaking. The good news is that because rents are low, because people are so desperate to get tenants back in, you're getting some new things. And I've seen this already with restaurants where there's a whole slew of brand new, fabulous restaurants that have opened by young people for young people. And I think we're going to see the same in fashion. We're going to see the rise of young brands that are going to step in because there's the space for them now. But for the big brands, it's really important because advertising, their marketing is based on noise, global noise. And you can't make a lot of noise on a digital fashion show. You need Travis Scott in a mosh pit on the Place de la Concorde. Now that's noise. And you need him launching a new single at your fashion show. That's noise. And every everyone's talking about. And then those pictures just live forever. Each runway picture will be republished over and over again for trend stories and in magazines and everywhere. They'll just keep making noise. And that's what you need to do. Even if you can't get your Asian customers to your fashion show physically, they can relive it through watching it on Instagram, on YouTube, it's seeing it in print. And, and they feel some of the frisson and then they want to go and buy. And that's what the goal of all this is. The fashion journalist and a regular voice here on Monocle 24, Dana Thomas, speaking to Monocle's design editor, Nolan Giles, earlier this week. One more highlight before we go, and for this one, we head to the mountains. The latest episode of Confect Corner is a note to both summer and the census, and their ability to spark memories that in turn work as inspiration. In this highlight, Monocle reporter Hester Underhill heads to the South Tyrolean hotel and spa Mila Montes to find out about some traditional mountain spa techniques. On her trip to the mountains, Hester discovered the art of knipe, and here she gives us a lesson. The health benefits of submerging oneself in cold water have been recognised since Roman times, but it's a Bavarian priest named Sebastian Kneipp who is known today as the father of modern hydrotherapy. 
In the mid-1800s, Knight believed he cured his tuberculosis by stimulating his circulatory system with cold water in order to boost his immune system and rid his body of disease. He went on to research and promote the health benefits of the techniques he'd used on himself and quickly gained a wide following in Germany and the South Tyrol, where his teachings are still in practice today. There are a number of specially designed spots across the region where you can try them for yourself. And, failing that, locate the closest rocky stream, remove your shoes and socks, and prepare to get splashy. The most common form of knipe involves wading in cold mountain water. Make sure your feet and legs are nice and warm before you plunge them in, for maximum effect. Walk around lifting each foot fully out of the water with each step. Once your skin starts tingling, it's time to get out. Not only is this a good way of stimulating your circulatory system, but it's particularly refreshing after a long day hiking in the Dolomites, and its proponents claim can even help get rid of varicose veins. Other techniques include putting your face in cold water, preferably with eyes open, to refresh and tighten the skin, and cold arm baths, which involve submerging your hands and wrists as an effective stress buster. Try it for yourself next time you're in the region. Or if you're not ready to take the plunge, you could also trial it in your bathroom sink. Monocle reporter Hester Underhill there for the latest episode of Conflict Corner, Monocle's sister podcast. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by Sam MP and presented by me, Carlotta Ribello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Thank you for listening and goodbye.